This is the podcast by the Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by the Straits Times, where we analyze the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan, and I cover science and environment for the Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David, and I'm the climate change editor at the Straits Times. Climate scientists have recently sounded alarm bells for humanity if immediate, rapid, and large-scale action to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is not taken. Today, in the second part of a series on putting a price on carbon, we discuss how doing so can help us achieve this aim and ward off catastrophic climate change. Joining us is Dr. Vinod Thomas, a visiting professor at the National University of Singapore, who was formerly with the Asian Development Bank and the World Bank. Welcome, Dr. Thomas, to our show. Thank you very much. So, Dr. Thomas, um, we know a key aim of pricing carbon is to drive change, to get companies, for example, to think more about the growing risks to their bottom lines from carbon pollution. Can you give us some good examples of how carbon pricing has worked, has driven change, for example, in the EU, or perhaps even if there are examples from outside the EU? In a way, uh, carbon pricing uh, has been tried at a very low price in limited countries. And so efforts to see some degree of causality between that and outcomes uh, have not been very impressive. So in the case of EU, yes, uh, they have led to one to two percent uh, decline uh, than otherwise of uh, carbon emissions, but that's nowhere close to what the Paris Agreement would like us to see in the coming years. But then I mentioned the case of Sweden, which has a much higher carbon price, right? And look at the effect there. There it's more dramatic. Sweden has uh, $137 a ton. It may be updated at the moment, um, but with that, the, uh, the country also is one with a healthy economic growth and a very impressive record on carbon emissions. So in a way, it has decoupled economic growth from the thinking that we had that growth goes necessarily with emissions. Uh, and Sweden is, uh, would be a good example of indicating that that doesn't have to be. And I would go further uh, in the case of individual companies. You now have examples that their triple bottom line is ser serving them even better than how it was before with a, a single bottom line. Um, now we did some exercises for uh, organizations at the World Bank and an Asian Development Bank um, previously, uh, where we found that where companies were uh, taking into account not just the financial uh, profits, but also social, but in this case, environmental slash climate uh, outcomes, the success of those projects were better uh, overall than if you hadn't done so. Just to say that at least when you do it cleverly and well, it is possible that attending to the climate uh, imperatives on the part of companies doesn't have to come at the expense of the bottom line, especially if the bottom line is correctly defined as one that includes the well-being of the people and the well-being of the planet. So country examples are few at the moment, but if the carbon pricing uh, and 
uh, the carbon market ideas are scaled up enormously, both uh, in terms of country coverage and in terms of uh, the uh, uh, rate of tax uh, that is placed on countries. The experience of Sweden uh, will definitely be uh, replicated, and that's what we need with a sense of urgency. Thanks, Dr. Thomas. But I was hoping we can discuss carbon pricing through offsets a bit more. Um, earlier, we discussed that it's just one of three broad kinds of mechanisms to put a price on carbon, and that the trade in carbon credits for reforestation efforts in the region should be just part of the package of measures that any country takes. Maybe tell us a bit more about that. How else does the purchase of carbon credits from nature-based solutions help the world tackle climate change? Carbon pricing um, has not arisen naturally um, like pricing uh, a pair of shoes. It has been a struggle in the sense that we had to discuss and show that clean air has a value in terms of people's health, in terms of the health of the planet. And therefore, yeah, we need to create a price for that. But the flip side of it is that when a good thing is done, uh, like creating that value and establishing a price, other good things are likely to follow. Uh, for example, if in a very congested road, uh, you create uh, the value for having less congestion by putting a toll that is variable depending on the worst time of the day and so on, that also adjusts people's behavior, uh, the way they would drive, uh, the times they would drive, and good things would follow. So the same way here, if with the carbon price in place, other mechanisms such as avoiding deforestation, afforestation uh, in some settings uh, will be more attractive because what you're achieving as a result, namely less carbon, all of a sudden, not only has a value in the academicians or observer's mind, but in reality, it can be traded. It can be uh, capitalized on. And so good things will emerge out of that establishment of a carbon price. And this would be extremely relevant for Southeast Asia because for this region, the possibilities of doing good things uh, such as carbon sequestration uh, or just simply becoming more efficient in energy use, uh, the possibilities are uh, enormous, uh, but the change would be that those possibilities will also have a market value in terms of a price that you can reap. Uh, let me just add one more thing in that context. Uh, if it were a carbon tax, the other good thing that comes out of it is that somebody is going to collect that tax and that creates some revenue and that revenue can be used. Well, it can be used. Uh, many countries in the EU are doing that. UK is a good example of that where um, you have a, a green plan sort of associated with the COVID response, but then you also have green expenditures. Uh, so when you do that, um, you are also um, redistributing um, in a better way than before uh, the proceeds of your activities uh, of the economy. To some extent, some of that would be a good thing to do and a necessary thing to do in the sense that taking action on the environment or climate in this case uh, has winners and losers, 
And you may need to compensate the losers in some way. It could be skill formation, or it, it could be in the case uh, of energy prices hurting the very poor. That is something one has to avoid uh, through transfer payments. The carbon tax revenue gives us an opportunity. Some of the calculations I have seen on uh, how much money one can collect as a result of a $75 a ton carbon price are just truly extraordinary. Uh, they, they run into the trillions. So I think, I think this is a great possibility that can also be tapped into. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating. So given your past background as an economist for the World Bank and the uh, Asian Development Bank, I'm sure you've encountered such drawbacks quite frequently. So perhaps, first of all, give us your thoughts on this. Right. The drawback of a carbon tax or a uh, carbon credit mechanism has to be related to uh, the encouragement that it provides to renewable forms of energy at the expense of fossil fuels. And the losing uh, on the latter brings forth concerns over both uh, economic growth and uh, distributional aspects. But here is the rub. Uh, At the moment, fossil fuels are subsidized in the world explicitly in many cases and implicitly in some other cases to the tune of anywhere between 500 billion by one set of calculations to a trillion in the case of including the intangible or health effects of those uh, uh, subsidies as well. So in any case, if you include those parts of the fossil fuel equation, then uh, one is not raising the price uh, of uh, uh, energy in a way. Uh, You are getting the price to where it ought to be once you take into account the ill effects of fossil fuel-based energy. So that would be one uh, one recognition that will change our mindset a little bit. Uh, but that said, does a renewable form of energy have to be more expensive uh, than <clears throat> fossil fuel-based energy? Uh, the difference between the two has uh, rapidly declined, uh, but there are some issues uh, that have to be addressed in terms of distribution, storage, uh, and even straight technology in many parts of the world. So the technological transfer, the financing for that, climate finance, all of those become extremely important. But even that, some polls, including ones done in Southeast Asia and in Singapore, suggest that even if the prices are comparable, people might prefer to have a traditional energy from the grid than experimenting with something, especially with the uncertainty that it uh, might involve. So clearly, there is a transition period And it is good economics uh, to provide subsidies for clean energy, uh, especially to improve the technology and to avoid the uncertainty. Why is that? It's simply because clean energy has uh, less health damages, which needs to be taken into account. And so pricing needs to be uh, cognizant of the health benefits and the planetary benefits of cleaner energy. So when you put all of this together, the picture that emerges is, yes, there are some transitional costs that need to be addressed and not being uh, cognizant of that. 
is not not only not right but also not smart because that is what is going to stop the implementation of the right policies. But if you extend the time horizon a little bit and see what is coming, then the writing on the wall is much clearer. The economics, especially the social calculus, socioeconomic calculus is clearly in favor of switching to renewable energy from fossil fuel-based energy and doing it as fast as possible, keeping in mind the problem of the winners and losers and the short-term transitional costs that have to be addressed. Uh, Dr. Thomas, I was just wondering whether you can share how other kinds of schemes that we have seen overseas about rechanneling funds collected from a carbon pricing scheme, uh, how feasible would that be in Singapore? Uh, I think in the US, there are some groups that are pushing for carbon fee and dividend where you collect funds and then rechannel it back to the lower income groups or households, for instance. How feasible is that in Singapore? Do you think we would need such a scheme? Um, I think uh, we now need to put this uh, in the real, uh, real situation of countries uh, where climate change, while it is the quintessential, the number one threat to sustained economic growth, is not the only one. We have uh, COVID-19 and the threat of pandemics like that uh, <clears throat> coming the way in the coming years. So how to sustain economic growth is a continuing question and it cannot be taken for granted. In that situation, <clears throat> the um, question of uh, cushioning the effects of any energy price uh, impacts is critically important. So the proceeds of a carbon tax being used in the most efficient way possible is, is one way to come at it. Using the dividends, meaning the earnings that you have out of carbon taxation for uh, the low-income groups who may have uh, suffered from the energy price increase is, is, is another. But altogether, we need to put this into a larger package of policy measures that are designed to sustain economic growth. Bottom line, climate policies, be it taxation, carbon credit, compensation, et cetera, any of those need to be extremely efficient. We know that from the COVID experience, something like $20 trillion were raised in a matter of, time, of a year by high-income countries uh, to deal with a critically serious problem. Climate change could be another one of several times its magnitude. And we are talking about raising 100 billion a year. And uh, clearly the type of uh, financing that is needed of the order of two to three uh, trillion a year is very small compared to what has already been raised with COVID-19. So it is possible to do it, but we need to show that any money that is raised uh, is going to be efficiently used. So I guess my bottom line on this would be, it is as important to raise the amount of money that is needed for the transition to low carbon growth, but to continue having the political support for that, it also needs to be shown that the growth and distributional sides are being addressed so that continued support or the financing for uh, climate-related issues 
uh, will be forthcoming. That cannot be taken for granted. Uh, immediately, one might start with things that bear fruit quickly. That would be smart economics, energy efficiency, uh, going, going to town with that, uh, greening of the cities, going to town with that, um, switching from fossil fuels uh, to uh, clean energy with compensating mechanisms or plowing back some of the uh, revenues into visible and immediately beneficial social programs, uh, that would be a smart thing to do. But the agenda for the coming years is clearly a huge one. And so all of these things that I mentioned uh, need to be scaled up enormously and with a sense of urgency. So thank you so much for joining us today and breaking down all the issues surrounding carbon pricing for us, Dr. Thomas. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was very good. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.